This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the TLS. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the Times Literary Supplement, and alongside me, as ever, is commissioning editor and pronunciation guru Thea Lenardutzi. And Thea, I want to talk to you about nicknames, because the subject did come up in the TLS offices on Friday night, and there were some extraordinary confessions among people who work here. We have someone known even to his wife as Leper because he looks like the ex-leper played by Michael Palin in The Life of Brian. Someone admitted to be... No, I'm not giving any names here. Someone admitted Unlike to be called you. The Snake, because his friends call him that in sort of gangsterish fashion because he slithers out of social situations. Caesar was somebody else because he looks like Commodus in Gladiator. He said it so bashfully. <laughs> it, didn't feel, it didn't feel plausible, that, to be honest. And then we decided that our resident philosophical miserablist, Andrew Irwin, could be an Andy. And he said... He could be an Andy, and we said, "No, you're not an Andy." And so now we're calling him Andy. And you and now said, he's stuck with it. He's stuck with it. And you said you had a strange. I don't nickname. know. I don't know why. I. I felt what was the nickname? Was, you know exactly what it was. I do. <laughs> it was Agrippina. Agrippina, <laughs> which in some ways is the name of the incestuous mother of Nero. Well, uh, I think which of, is an odd I nickname her, to choose. Well, no, she was she was also the strident and bold upholder of morals and wife of Germanicus. She yeah. was criticised for her. For is this being why so you did it? Strident. No, actually, no. no. It was it was far more puerile than that. Me and my friends just went through a phase of finding old ladies' names hilarious. And Agrippina is an <laughs> old lady's name. In... Genoveffa and Gertrude, things like that. And yeah. their old fashioned names. So we were, we, were, we were four and we all wow. had different so Agri- old ladies Can names. I call you Agrippina for the no, rest of this podcast? No, you can't. No, I can't. Well, you can maybe for the rest of this podcast and then we draw a line under it and we move on. And I would like to say that the yes. fact that you have absorbed your nickname and made yeah, it your I, own. I can only think that that's a deflection from, from other nicknames that you're well, choosing not think, to disclose. Yeah, I don't think it is, although I, I ha- you're right. I, I'm, I feel completely invulnerable here because um, I already have a silly name. You can say nothing to me. <laughs> we should move on. Uh, let me remind everyone before we start that you can follow this podcast now on Twitter at FBFM underscore podcast and review it on iTunes. And if you want to subscribe to the TLS, here is a deal for you. Google TLS subscriptions and type pod one in the offer code section. You can get six issues for six pounds. So coming up on the show this week, I am a camera, said Christopher Isherwood in passing, but it has come to define his style or his perceived style, especially as a novelist. He was also though an undistinguished screenwriter for MGM Studios in the 40s and 50s and wanted more than anything to be a filmmaker. Henry K. Miller will join us to discuss Isherwood at the movies. 
What has made the British landscape what it is, is a question worth asking. And the answer may prove to be, to a large extent, the British population. Richard Forty has reviewed a book called The Making of the British Landscape, which should instead refer to the humanscape as a way of considering how our country has been shaped and made habitable today. We're also going to talk about a documentary of teenage girls coming of age in New York called All This Panic. Who would want to be a teenager today? Lamorna Ash, who is almost a teenager herself, shall be here to tell us. We shall start with Christopher Isherwood, the novelist and frustrated movie maker, perhaps best known for his Berlin period, the stories of which were adapted into the film Cabaret, and his relationship with W.H. Auden. Henry K. Miller has written a piece for this week's TLS where he considers the influence of film on Isherwood, which started in the demi-monde of Cambridge. Isherwood, as an undergraduate, used to sneak out and attend a forbidden cinema called The Rendezvous, and the impressions of these early films of the 1920s was a lasting one on him. I Am A Camera is a passing reference in the Berlin stories that came to embody Isherwood's style. The full quote is, I am a camera with its shutter open, quite passive, recording, not thinking. It also counts perhaps as a statement of ambition. Isherwood wanted to be a filmmaker above all things, though had to be satisfied with toiling to little avail as a screenwriter in Hollywood. In any event, he was a writer and person deeply influenced by the new artistic form of film. Henry Miller joins Thea and me now. Henry, uh, should we start with talking about the importance of, of movies to the undergraduate Isherwood, the Isherwood of Cambridge in the 20s? Yes, I mean, he was part of a generation um, who had started to take film seriously. You'd only really had um, newspapers taking films seriously from the early 20s, and the undergraduates picked up on that and sort of took it further. They were... Um, kind of true cinephiles, and these German films were particularly important to them. And why was it banned? I mean, was this just the stuffy Cambridge thing because it sounded a little bit racy, or was there, was there anything else going on there? I looked in the archive and trying to find a real reason for this, and I don't know whether it is fraternisation with the locals or whether it's the German films that were being shown. It could be either one, but it was controversial to show German films in this particular cinema, The Rendezvous, which is slightly outside of the centre of Cambridge, was showing them. Um, so it's, it's kind of toss-a-coin territory. But it kind of came to a head when the cinema showed Cabinet of Dr Caligari and it began to look ridiculous because not only the undergraduates, but various dons, we don't know who, were going to see it as well. For those of us who aren't immediately familiar with that film, mm. I mean, what, why was it such an event when it was screened in Cambridge? What was, what was it about this film? It seemed, I mean, it's just, it's, you watch it now and it's a somewhat primitive film, but it's one of the classic expressionist films. It was seen as experimental in its time. It had a huge reputation behind it from being shown in, in the States and in Paris. And it seemed to capture this kind of post-war malaise. It seemed to be about um, the sort of madness that had come over Europe at this point, only, only 10 years before, um, and, and thrown it into the war. I mean, that was the, the, the people who wrote the film. That was certainly in their minds that it was, it was about the madhouse of Europe. And it took a while to come to, to Britain because British film trade, the exhibitors, decided to boycott German films immediately after the First World War. And eventually they were sort of broken down and did allow them in. But it, it took a while. And that boycott made people like Isherwood 
it almost drew him to German films, didn't it? This notion right. if, if, if it was banned, then actually the German film industry was a great expression of civilization. Exactly. I mean, he was a rebel incarnate, and he wasn't a, a, alone in this. There was always a kind of a counter movement say, you know, let's not be beastly to the Germans and let's start watching their films. But of course, that would make him, him drawn to it. But in a very, I mean, it's a strange one in that his father was killed in the First World War. The, the feeling of vengeance, which was fairly mainstream in the early 1920s, one might have expected Ishwood to have been part of that. But in fact, he took the completely opposite course. And more, more than anything, I mean, that these films inspired in him the kind of the revolt. It was, a, it was his, his watching of them was a revolt against the, the old man, I think you, you say, mm. the old man, the past, the poshocracy. Yes, I mean, of course, he, it was a pretty stuffy place in those days. His, the master of his college had been a kind of real holdout against women being admitted as full members of the university and so on. It was a, a form of rebellion against that. He was studying history, and he was at a fairly, uh, well, churchy college. Not, he wasn't only seeing the German films, he was also sort of seeing, you know, the kind of great uh, Gloria Swanson uh, films that she made with Cecil B. DeMille. He wrote about them as well. It was, uh, this kind of embrace of, of American popular culture was a form of um, rebellion for him, yeah. Is it also the beginning of the grand tradition, which I suspect still goes on to this day, of students being a bit pretentious about films? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, is, is, is he the father of that? Is that what we should be looking at? Is she with the father of, uh, of, of students banging on about uh, esoteric German films no one else has seen? Ah, yes and no, because he eventually, um, he eventually sort of later in the year laments that, exactly that. He says, you know, the coming of art has been a terrible thing, and he, he looks back fondly, which is inconceivable to us, because we, we think of the 1920s as pre, prehistory. But he, in 1924, is looking back on the good old days of movies when they were unpretentious and you could just go and enjoy a Western <laughs> where you knew who the good guys and the bad guys were. But he was part of, I mean, the Evelyn War, exactly simultaneously with him in Oxford, was also writing student film reviews. So they are part of, um, yes, that... Uh, a proud tradition. Yeah, I mean, as a student film reviewer myself. But, um, <laughs> yeah, we've all done it. We've all done it. <laughs> after the war, he, well, after the Second World War, he goes to Hollywood. And it strikes me, that reading your view, that he's never f- succeeded in the world of film. He never made it as a screenwriter. He never made it as a director. Yet he was this extremely talented figure, brilliant man, and yet he couldn't seem to, to, to make it in the industry of film. What happened to him, and why do you think that is? Well, it's, it's actually yes and no, because he, he earned a living from it, and he is, his name is on the credits of some... They're not... None of them are, are well-known films today, but they're, they're not exactly minor. I mean, he wrote a film for the, uh, for the young Ingrid Bergman, for an Ava Gardner film, um, this one with Lana Turner, which um, from the 1950s, Diane. It, it was kind of a big deal, but they're not good films, and they're not memorable films, and they're not remembered. They're also not terrible films, but they're just sort of mediocre, and they don't have very much of the issueed... At least I, I can't. I, 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 I didn't write about them in the end because I just couldn't find anything very issued about them. As for him being a director, I don't know if he ever really had the. Oh, I'm sure that he didn't really have the, the necessarily skills for that. They're very different from being a writer. But also, he doesn't seem to have particularly pushed himself in that direction. But he was pretty much sewn into Hollywood. He was moving in the right circles. You get stray references to him in. 
Hollywood memoirs, he knew the writer, the co-writer of Sunset Boulevard, um, Charles Brackett. He kind of pops up in, in, in his diaries. Um, so it's, it's even though he, his, his diaries have been published virtually unexpurgated, thousands of pages, and you get a sense of him, you know, going to knowing major people within Hollywood, but just never quite getting there. And even in the 1960s, after the studio system breaks down, he, he writes some films for Tony Richardson, the British director, who was incredibly um, hot in those days. He'd gone off to America to adapt Evelyn Waugh's The Loved One. And this, surely this one would have been right up Isherwood Street, their contemporaries. It's Evelyn Waugh's story about being in Hollywood. Uh, well, he got rewritten in, in the end. Terry Southern rewrote the whole thing, but uh, there's just not a lot of issue in there. So it's puzzling, but it also really delayed his career. He didn't really publish that much novel-wise in the 40s and 50s. You mentioned, though, that some of some of the early films, you said there wasn't anything particularly Isherwoody about mm. them. What what would have been Isherwood tropes? What would you have expected to see if he had been allowed to make a film purely mm. in his own way? The subject that he'd made his own was the sort of collapse of Western European civilization um, in, in, in Germany. Before that, there's also his very first novels. The second one in particular, The Memorial, is fascinating. It has this very strong sense of post-war gloom. Now, that wouldn't really have found a place, an easy place in 1940s or 50s Hollywood. It's quite difficult to translate it. Well, of course, his main subject was himself, was Isherwood. Um, and he didn't work on Cabaret and he didn't work on... I am a camera, which is also based on the Berlin stories. So it, it, it never really came to anything. One point that you made earlier, which I, it struck me when I, I was thinking of what I would know about Christopher Isherwood just generally. You talk about who he knew, and he seemed to know the right people, and you know he befriends Capote at one point. He knows Aldous Huxley in LA. Mm. In many ways, to me, you say Isherwood, I think Auden. Mm. Is it his fate to ever be considered as the person who knew someone? more successful rather than to be considered as a figure in his own right? I'm not sure about that. I mean, he, I, I think that his, especially his early novels, I suppose, stand up very well. And A Single Man, which was adapted into a film a while ago, I, I, A Single Man is a, a really important and really good novel. I think that the early ones possibly suffer, he said so himself, from the narrator, i.e. him being slightly too vague, slightly out of focus, um, he wasn't able to talk about his sexuality in those novels, it being the 30s. The single man, he can put himself at the centre of things. He can really say who he is, and that's quite a late novel for him. He must have been uh, late 50s. No, I, I, I don't think he, he needs to be an ordinary shadow at all. You mentioned that, that recent adaptation of A Single Man. Mm. That was, of course, directed by Tom Ford, who, yeah. who's better known as a fashion designer. I think that was his yeah. directorial debut. I mean... How true to Auden's vision do you think that was? Because it was a film that was talked about so much in terms of the style of it. Yeah, extremely untrue to to the novel. The novel is set in in Santa Monica, which Ishwood experiences a sort of a haven. It's 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 out on the coast. It's not really that close to Hollywood, and he found a sort of bohemian emigre enclave. This is another aspect of Ishwood. He always had plans to write giant novels on a big canvas, and he wanted to write one about the emigre community out there, which included. Salka Viertel, who was Greta Garbo's screenwriter, she was the centre of a sort of social hub. But his, his version of Santa Monica, it was slightly down at heel and shabby. And it was a kind of holdout of the old LA before the freeways and before the aviation industry and so on took off. And the film 
is extremely stylish mm. and fashionable and doesn't, I'm afraid, get that. They may have, may have other merits to it, but it, it didn't really get that aspect of, of it with Los Angeles. So you're not going to end on a recommendation uh, to go and watch <laughs> the, the I'm afraid, afraid, sorry, that's, Tom Paul, no. That's, very, that, that's all right, that's all right. Henry Miller, thank you so much for, for, for doing this piece and for joining us now. Thank you. I love the aesthetic of the, the sort of shabby Los Angeles, mm. the sort of Chandler esque smog of Los Angeles mm. where it's not it is down at hill and there's the kind of the glittering Hollywood up on the hill and then there's the smog and the mm, the, light the, and the, the, the brittleness and uh, and all of that and so I, 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 I I've read that book a long time ago a single man but I like the idea of it being sort of down at hill yeah. and a bit shabby it's, and it's a good aesthetic I think I, I was it's, I was interested in Henry's piece because I hadn't really thought about it in these terms but it's interesting how he starts the story with um, Isherwood turning away from Virginia Woolf after seeing that screening in 1931 of, of a film by uh, G.W. Pabst. And Isherwood apparently said, that makes Virginia Woolf look pretty silly. And then the piece ends with him coming back to Virginia Woolf yeah. in the context of a single man, which is a sort of taking up and reworking of Mrs. Dalloway, yeah. which I hadn't, I don't know why or how, but I just hadn't hadn't made that connection. Well, I think never... I didn't know about the relationship. No, I agree with that, but he's never quite as much of a rebel as... Perhaps he intended to be. Do you think that's a fair summary of Isherwood? And he wants to rebel. He wants to move away from that yeah. tradition and ends up because the single man is a relatively traditional novel. It's not. It's not sort of crazily. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, in, it's 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 you you get a very clear sense in in this piece that we have um, from Henry of how Isherwood was a man who, with so much potential, and it was almost like he wanted to do two things rather than doing one thing very, very well. So yeah. had he just focused all of his energy in writing novels, we would have maybe had, you know, more. Yeah, and he, uh, Henry, I, I think Henry likes him, so he doesn't like it when I say, yeah. I, 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 I think of other people. But I do, if you say issue it, I think yeah. Gordon immediately, and the first thing that I think of, is that probably the same for you as well? Probably, yeah. I mean, yeah, you think of him in, in the group of, of, the, of the people that he that he knew. I mean, and I think I think Henry sort of did... did did say that, that that was all right. <laughs> he let us off the hook because the films that he that he worked on aren't particularly well known today. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's it's quite a sad story, really, of of sort of thwarted ambition. From the louche and liberated world of Weimar Germany to the awkward, vomit-strewn teenage parties of contemporary Brooklyn, in a feature documentary, all this panic. The film, directed by Jenny Gage and Tom Betterton, did the festival circuit last year and is just now hitting the cinemas. So for three years, Betterton and Gage followed a group of girls growing up in the city. The result is a dreamy and stylish meditation on the fraught space between girlhood and womanhood, glinting with the kinds of, of gem that you, you tend to overhear if you eavesdrop on teenagers who are prattling away at the back of the bus. The film, says our reviewer Lamorna Ash, offers a sensitive, funny and often joyous interrogation of the lives of seven young women. Lamorna is on the phone with us now. Lamorna, tell us first, who are these girls? So Jenny Gage and Tom Betterton live in Brooklyn and they'd see these two girls walking to school each morning who are the kind of beginners of the story, which is Ginger and Dusty. And they said that they could see them each morning, maybe in these sort of huge fights of screaming at each other and would come in with completely different hair colours and kind of performing this identity, this sort of teenage identity on the way to school. And they decided to approach those girls and ask them if they could make maybe a short documentary. And I think they had no sense of quite what the film would become. And from speaking to them and occasionally seeing them, they started to kind of build this network of other girls around them. And they were all at the same high school, but I think 
particularly Sage seems to have a really different experience than the other girls. So tell um, us about Sage. So she's brilliant. I don't understand how she could be so emotionally mature and kind of with it at that. She's about 16 when they meet her. Um, but she's one of the few black girls at their school. And she, her father dies during the filming of All This Panic. And she has this feeling of being kind of the only one, but she's not really conscious of that. And then the, as the film expands, it goes on to when they're about 19. And she's gone to college. And she describes this feeling of um, having held a deep breath and finally being able to let her out when she gets to college and finally meets other people from similar backgrounds to her and kind of recognising that actually she had been the odd one out at school and no longer has to behave like the other girls. Because presumably if she wasn't in this film, there's a risk of trendy Brooklyn filmmakers speak to people who live in and go to a middle-class school in Brooklyn. Theoretically, that could be rather unbearable, couldn't it? Just sort of privileged people gabbling on in their late teenage years. Does it, is it Sage who gives the sort of emotional heart to the film? I don't know. I mean, because I think I would think that too. And when I first went into the film, within the first five minutes, it is this intensely dreamy, hazy cinematography. And it feels unbelievably pretentious. And I kind of thought, I'm not sure I can sit through this. Yeah. But after about 15 minutes, you realise that it's not this outward-looking thing. It's not saying, you know, these are these teenagers and they're going through difficulties in the way that a lot of coming-of-age films do. Because what they did as filmmakers is they'd wait until the girls sort of apparently said what they thought that they wanted to hear. And then they'd speak candidly. So actually, it kind of transcends that feeling of being, I don't know, looking at these like middle-class kids. And yeah. also, the, the backgrounds are more diverse than that. There's a girl called Lena in it who is having, again, this incredibly hard time outside of the context of thinking about teenagehood and sex and boys. She's had these phone calls from one of her parents is incredibly depressed and trying to, has tried to basically kill himself. And her mother is also incredibly vulnerable. And so she actually is trying to get funding for college at the same time and is unable to do so. Another girl doesn't go to university at all. And again, is like completely struggling with money. So I'm not sure it is that middle class. Upper yeah. class. Mm. One of the, one of the girls, I think it's Sage, in fact, one of the girls, um, anyway, remarks how the teenage body is so sexualized. People want to see you, she says, but they don't want to hear what you want to say. And then uh, another point, you have Delia, who says quite brilliantly, isn't sex supposed to be fun? Isn't that like the yeah. whole point of sex, which is a line which really makes you wonder how many biology lessons she bunked off from. <laughs> yeah. um, but I mean, how, how major a role does, does sex play in this film? I mean, how much of the girl's headspace seems taken up with that particular part of growing up? To begin with, I thought, God, this is the product of their time. These are these kids who have so much access to all this information and the internet and telling them what sex should be and what it shouldn't be. But I think what is great about it is when the fact that actually the universality of, of, of thinking about sex, and no matter how much you read, you still don't know and they're still like, wonderfully naive about it. So it's something they talk about, but I think kind of two things. Like Partly, Sage is brilliant because... She seems to know, she says that she calls herself a teenage feminist and how difficult that is, and she gets teased about it. But that also shows something kind of amazing that she's able to know what that is. She's able to look online. And suddenly I have friends who have younger siblings who say that coming out as a teenager feels so much easier now because there is this amazing dialogue going on on the internet sort of to talk about it. So I think they, they talk about sex and it's 
kind of silly and sweet, but it also has this awareness that I certainly didn't have as a teenager. We're, we're sort of compelled in some senses, because none of us are teenagers now, and some of us are a, long, a lot further away from being teenagers than others. But we kind of feel that being a teenager now is being saturated in sex. You know, it's the world of internet pornography. And so if you're a 14-year-old boy, you've seen very, very graphic sex acts in a way that previous generations never would. And the same is true of girls, and then there's expectations created from that. But that's not the impression you got from this. It wasn't people sort of wading through a, a sort of foul morass of, 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 of sex and objectification. No, and I think the Gage and Besson, so I went to the QA with the directors, and they were really careful about this because I think what they were so frightened of was, was giving this voyeuristic gaze that actually perpetuates that idea of teenagers as highly sexualized and, you know, all, all sleeping with one another at 14. But you actually get these wonderful moments where you get the before and after of little house parties rather than the actual parties because they, they, they just felt uncomfortable being at the parties and kind of watching these kids slowly trying to navigate talking to opposite sex, which is still difficult, which kids still seem to struggle with. So you'd actually get this moment before when Lena would go, okay, I'm going to get drunk, he's going to get drunk, then it will get dark, and maybe I'll kiss him. And then, you get a, yeah, and then you get a cut, and it's after the party, it's the next morning, and they all look incredibly fragile in dressing gowns. And Lena's like, no, he said he didn't like me, so I didn't kiss him. And it's just... This is oddly quaint, Lena. I expected this to be all about, you, you know, sort of cocaine and sex, and it's about kissing and things like that. It's, it's, no, completely. There's also, there's um, talking of, well, cocaine and sex, but there's this wonderful bit. So much of it, I think so much of the laughter came from this recognition that we've all been there, and you actually see looks in their eyes, and you're like, oh, God, yeah. So there's a bit when Sage, and she has this brilliant relationship with her mum there's so much so witty combative stuff between them um and the mum says sage i found i found a bong in the garden <laughs> and you see sage's face and she's like oh um yeah i was holding that for, for a friend and i left it there, i forgot and the mum and the mum looks at her and sort of and then says i just don't understand how they can smoke so much of that stuff that they need a utensil for it <laughs> <laughs> And it's just so sweet and funny, and she can, she sort of is able to literally mimic what her mum's saying to the camera because you you get the sense she's heard this so many times. Did it make you feel nostalgic for your teenage years, Lorna? I'm not sure it made me feel nostalgic. I think I have a strange relationship with my teenage years because I think of it as an intensely difficult time, and I often find that it's actually it's so hard to look back mm. reflectively and understand what the hell you're thinking as a teenager. It's such a confusing time. But it certainly made me feel kind of compassionate for teenage me because some of them are so unhappy and frustrated. And I think it's this double of being at your most sensitive and kind of most close to the world. Every word that is said to you means so much. Mm. But at the same time, having this absolute imperception and failure to understand what it actually means. And there's an interesting line on which we should probably end, which is a comment made by Betterton, one of the directors, where he says something to the effect that teenagers are probably the only class of person you can rely on to conceive of their lives as cinematic enough to make into movies, which says something about the intensity with which we we live that period of our lives. Yeah, completely. It is is as if there's a camera on you. And I suppose now with Instagram, I think there really is. But they they say these cliches and mean them so entirely that it's, it's really lovely because like um i think being an adult would be the scariest thing in the world um from i think dusty says that she's right <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. yeah I, think, I think let's let's leave it on the wisdom of dusty there being an adult is the most difficult thing in the world we're going to say amen to that uh, Lamorna, thank you so much for joining us
What I find about these coming-of-age stuff, particularly American things, you, I feel nostalgic for a childhood I didn't have. Mm. So, you know, when you look at the, the American teen comedies I remember as a kid, you know, the coming-of-age stuff, it was nothing like my experience, which mm. was a sort of dreary Midlands <laughs> sl- slough of despond. But you still kind of feel there's some universals in that about sort of boys and girls and mm. drink and and. and and drugs and things like that that, mm. that are universal. But you end up feeling, in some ways, a warmth through an experience you didn't have. And, and that almost makes up for the fact that you didn't have it. Yeah, I think it's, it's an interesting one, this one as well, because the filmmakers, I mean, their photographers and much of their work is is in, in fashion shoots for, for Vogue and Vanity Fair, and they've, they've worked extensively on ad campaigns. So you would wonder whether they're, the, you know, to what extent you can trust them to convey the reality of the yeah. thing beyond the kind of the gloss and the cinematic haze and yet then you, you think of the kind of the notion of this ecstatic truth you know Werner Herzog's yeah. theory of the ecstatic truth a reality that is more real than the, than the crude facts and in terms of how this film might create the feeling of being a teenager the feeling of thinking that your life is a film I think it's probably a very effective yeah and one. almost when you go over the top as Lamora said at the beginning you think oh this is going to be too pretentious mm. and in some ways that's a keynote of being a teenager where you, you veer ever close and mm. sometimes well past yeah. the boundaries of pretentiousness yeah. it's almost like you say the, the a mimetic way of, of showing yeah. it and for every cliche you have some kind of unexpected insight yes. <laughs> something yeah. true it sounds great I think we should go I think we should, I might go and watch it yeah it's on in the cinemas we should it's, go and see it. Yeah. See, that's a better recommendation. Don't go and see a single man. Go and see <laughs> all that panic. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
How easy is it to tell the story of the British landscape, a sweeping tale encompassing several millennia, from the retreat of the ice caps in 9700 BC to the crowded, some might say overcrowded, island of today? As Richard Forty says in his review of Nicholas Crane's The Making of the British Landscape, the only constant is the human species, always questing, inventive and drawn to ritual and warfare in equal measure, and always breeding back after reverses, a population growing by fits and starts, but relentlessly following a stuttering upward curve. So any history of the landscape is a history of the humanscape, the ways in which we have dug and delved, built and quarried. The book, according to Forty, is about flintworks, canals, castles, drainage and conquest. It is about the archives of human activity as recorded on the ground. Which sounds like a pretty formidable area for a book to cover. Richard joins Thea and me now. Richard, among this this tremendously sweeping narrative, is there an, an overarching message? Is it about the adaptability of humankind or it, or is it about how humankind dominates the landscape or is there nothing really at all to, to, to draw as, as a sort of considered conclusion? Well, I mean, the story of the British landscape is one of progressive human impact. To start with, we were controlled almost entirely by geological and climatic constraints. And through thousands and thousands of years, we've gradually weaned ourselves away from dependence on the landscape as it is and modified things more and more. And Nicholas Crane is extremely good on what humans do, particularly in a technological way. It's very clear that the history of this landscape is the history of infrastructure, as Stig pointed to in his introduction. It's of roads and bridges and canals and supposedly HS2 now. But, I mean, this this comes at the expense of the actual land, I mean, in reality, but also in, in, in Nicholas Crane's book. He, he gives short shrift to the the natural world here, doesn't he? Yes, it's one of those things, it's a kind of opposite book to the kind of thing that Oliver Rackham might have written, where woodland and the history of woodland is followed in detail. This is mostly about the history of clearing of woodland. Is the lesson of the humanscape that you describe that we have now altered the ecology, the landscape, to such an extent that there is an upper limit of what we can take and how close are we to that in terms of population? Well, one of the good things about this book is it makes quite clear about the importance in the history of the country on the oscillations of climate, which are inevitable. They're to do with the way the Earth wobbles on its axis, for example. There will be further cold periods, just as there were in the 1300s. And we don't know how that will actually impact on a scenario of global warming, which nearly everybody accepts is happening. Now, we are just about cultivating everything we possibly can, We've drained the swamps. We've put in fertiliser to increase yields. I don't think there's any possibility that if some crisis happened, we could be self-sufficient. We couldn't just go back to dig for victory. We're too numerous. But we're also uh, so there hi- will be a crisis coming at some point in the future. Must be. But we're also hyper-connected now in a way that we weren't a thousand years ago. So you could make... I mean, I, I guess, is this a gloomy prognostication or one where you suggest there'll be a way through it because you can make an argument that technology will continue to improve connectedness will continue to improve so even if our natural resources dwindle or or the climatic change renders them uh, weaker there will be a way in a way as possible well if the rest of the world is not afflicted in the same way by similar changes that might be true But I suspect if these changes are global or as widespread as they were, uh, say, in the 1300s, 
uh, the other countries will be having the same problems too. There won't be a kind of mountain of food that could be shifted across to a suffering Britain. I think the overpopulation question is extremely fundamental here. In the more immediate future, I mean, would you dare to speculate on, on the lie of the land post-Brexit? Simply because, as you say in your piece, when we think of the British countryside, we think of these manicured fields with quaintly nestled farms and, uh, and farmland, and, and, and that exists in large part because of the huge EU subsidies, which the, EU can't pos- I mean, the UK can't possibly cover on its own. So, I mean, how do you think the landscape might change? Will we simply build on all of all of that old farmland to make up for our lack of housing? Well, that's happening now, isn't it? I mean, the, the green belt is being nibbled at. Hmm. Every town up and down the country, I think, has some sort of quota to provide new housing. And one of the curious things is, of course, that it's much easier to build new housing on rather nice horizontal agricultural land. So we're gobbling up at various scales, I think, agricultural land in order to build the homes that people need because of the the rising population. So there will be less land available to feed people. I'm I'm struck by the notion, Richard, that um, that agricultural land seems like the countryside and seems like nature to us now. And, you know, you look at the moorlands and... Uh, and you think that, you know, the romantic ideal of them. And, of course, they are themselves products of technology. They're products of clearances and, and farming. And it's, it's interesting, isn't it, that what we previously would have been seen as a great scourge across the landscape, you know, cutting down trees and draining swamps, now actually carries with it romantic connotations themselves of the natural world. That's right. The t- t- perception changes through time. Um, I think that um, uh, the wildwood for example, uh, which at one time people thought that the ancient forests that still grow were the wildwood. Well, now that's perfectly clear that that's not the case, that there's hardly a scrap of the English countryside that hasn't been modified by the hand of man. Um, The last little possible bits of wildwood are sometimes claimed rather scraggly oak forests on Dartmoor, but even that's in dispute. So yes, the countryside, which, as you say, we often romanticise, is itself a product of, uh, of human activity. And how, how do we compare with Europe? Because you say in, in, the, in the book, Nicholas Crane makes a few points of comparison, sidelong glances. How do we compare with Europe in terms of the way that we feel and use the land and have changed it and, and what you were talking about, the wildwood? And, and... Well, I think Europe is generally more forested. Germany and France certainly are. But I think, again, the hand of man has been shaping that for a long time. I, I, there's only one small patch of, of alleged wildwood in uh, Poland and adjacent countries, which has an uh, unpronounceable name beginning with B, <laughs> uh, which mm. is where the last aurochs hung out until the yeah. time of Shakespeare. Mm. And, of course, it was probably after aurochs that the very first inhabitants post-Ice Age moved into the pen- then peninsula Britain. Uh, as part of a hunter, essentially hunter-gathering community. And where, where, where do you stand on rewilding them? Because it's a good reference to that, because the, the aurochs, these, these, these animals that were certainly there in Roman Britain and, and, and Roman Europe and, and no longer there now, and wolves and wild boars and the like. Is there going to be a need for a kind of considered backlash, to, a rewilding to say, otherwise we are going to build on the fields, the fields themselves with the removals of the woods. If we don't at least check that in some areas, we will be going down a route from which there's no return. Do you think rewilding becomes a, a, a feasible option? Uh, it's, it's a 
an option that ought to be thought about, but I'm not sure about feasible. Uh, I don't think that introducing beavers, for example, will do any harm whatsoever. But I do feel that there is a kind of laissez-faire attitude to human interference now, which sometimes can be counterproductive. For example, the growth of the deer populations in southern England is doing really rather a lot of damage to the regeneration of our beech forests and other forests in, in, in England. Uh, they ought to be culled, but people think they're kind of cute. Mm. Um, there's a lot of debate about whether the badgers, which of course are kind of iconic and feature on all those, um, those slightly whiffly piffly nature programs, whether their numbers are getting far too large. I know of several conservationist-minded people who believe that that's certainly true but we don't have any options for culling them in large numbers, for example. Are they not natural inhabitants? I mean, that's not a, the badger population is not a human introduction, is it? I mean, is it... Is, is the no, thing- but the populations may well have grown much larger from when countrymen used to regularly take badgers off their land. I see. But I don't really think the wolf option... I take the point that we've, we're, we're missing a top predator, mm. which would, have, which would uh, have impacts all the way down through the large herbivore populations of deer and so on and that would have originally been there uh, but um, I don't really imagine wolves roaming wild in the island mm. of Scotland I think it's interesting to think what the introduction of top predators would do to the to the human psyche as well though it wouldn't do much for the farmers uh, psyche I wouldn't have thought having wolves prowling well, I, around where, where, I, where they've got sheep and I cattle. wonder about that and they've, they've done that on the continent haven't they where they've reintroduced wolves and the farmers are you know, rightly to to an extent, up in arms, because it would mean it would mean a they you know they lose sheep and that is their money. Wolves have been successfully reintroduced into wilderness sites, like for example Yellowstone Park, mm. and they have had a beneficial effect on the whole ecosystem there. But uh, there's nowhere in Britain that compares in any details with Yellowstone Park. Mm. And the thing with Yellowstone is that there aren't humans aren't living there, and, and, and a lot of the fears are around you know wolves coming in and taking babies, which are sort of misplaced fears. As, well, as the, I the fear of the wolf is deeply embedded, as Angela Carter realised, mm. in the uh, European psyche. Um, and maybe it would add a sort of frisson to bedtime. <laughs> The big bad wolf yeah. actually existed out there somewhere. Well, Richard, let's leave it on that perfectly literary uh, note. Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a great point uh, about reviving the, the, the fear of the wolf. Richard Forty, thank you very much indeed. My pleasure. Bye bye. That is that is sort of what I was 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 getting at there with the idea of of how the British psyche or any psyche is changed by knowing that there is something that can do them harm yeah. out there that isn't another human with a gun. As it is. Um, are we are we the are we the main country in the world? Main. I mean, because you think about America, there are bears and there mm. are pumas and there are stuff like that. You ca- if you camp in America in the wrong place, you can come to mischief. That's mm. presumably true in... Is that true in Germany and France? I think, well, yes, less, they, they have, they have so. wolves in, in, in some parts of especially Poland and, and, and so on. But I, I mean, I, I think you're still pretty unlikely to yeah. be un- attacked by a wolf. But I think Australia, that's, there's snakes and there's spiders Yeah, I mean, stuff. Australia, I don't understand how anyone's still alive because they have so many <laughs> deadly species. <laughs> But I like that. So what would happen? So what would happen if you went on a long walk in Britain, mm. and you had to be careful because a super predator lived there? Mm. Would that affect how we behave, how we consider ourselves as human beings? Or I would, would hope so. 
I would hope it would humble us somehow to know that there's something out there that's... Yeah. Are that, Americans known for their us. humility? <laughs> yeah, <don't>, uh, <laughs> 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 I, I find this whole area fascinating. I do find this interesting. That we've talked about this before on this podcast, but it is fascinating to me that we look at the Moors... And we think, oh, romantic nature at its kind of bleakest in Britain. Yeah. And of course, it's a product of, of, of mankind. And- yeah, and, and also, if you think, I had a piece from one of our writers, Brian Morton, a couple of years ago, which made the point that, you know, William Wordsworth looked at the lakes and he thought, oh, wow, beautiful, um, God's land. And then only a generation before that, I think it was William Cowper, yeah. I've probably got that wrong, um, looked out and thought, oh my God, it's hideous, it's petrifying. Yeah. Um, and romanticism changes, but whether we've lost... But there is this nature writing that seeks to reclaim it. Yeah. But maybe does that sound sort of twee in, in the light of all... I mean, it's almost, you know, in the face of the storm of all of this stuff, the progress is away from, mm-hmm. is about technology and agriculture and overcrowding. Mm. And it's nice to have these moments where we reflect on nature, but... Do they just feel quaint in the end? Well, yeah, I, I suppose the thing is you can't reflect on nature without, as Nicholas Crane does, reflecting on man because we've made nature. It's the, how the, the other defines, how one defines the other. You see that when you think of, you know, the Sussex Downs, for example, the newest national park created in, I think, 2010 or 11. Oh, Sussex. Yeah, Sussex Downs. Yeah. You're interested in <laughs> that because you might be going to live in that part of the world. I'm hoping to. Yeah. It's interesting how at the same time as we're, you know, eating up bits of the green belt, we have carved out this bit which is sacred somehow and we look at it as this natural thing but that itself has been completely shaped by our farming techniques you know going back to the neolithic times yeah it's interesting yeah it's interesting stuff well i'm sure you'll enjoy sussex (laughs) is the the moral of that story that's about all (laughs) we have time for today our thanks go to lamorna ash richard forty and henry k miller do go to the-tls.co.uk to see this week's edition of the paper which tells many stories including of Isherwood's chum Edward Upward, the death of the novel, the feminism of Ursula Le Guin and the career of Clement Attlee. You can subscribe to us for as little as £6 for six issues. Do tweet at us at this podcast at fbfm underscore podcast with your comments and suggestions and join us next week for an art history special where we shall cover Bosch, Bruegel, Hogarth, Ahumament and countless folk in between. Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.